everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and today Ken is going to give us a recap of his Costa Rica trip. So, Ken, you were in Costa Rica uh, right before Christmas, I think. That's right. I arrived uh, in the country on the 12th of December, which was a Monday, and I left on the 19th, which was one Monday later. Um, while I was there, we had, uh, some fun times. Uh, I met with some old friends and of course we did a conference. Um, I had a team with me on this trip and initially I thought maybe the team was oversized. We had about 20 people, uh, with me, but in the end it worked out quite well because it allowed us to work in pairs and we had enough things going on from a ministry standpoint that, well, you know, it just it allowed us to have sufficient coverage um, because a lot of times in the past when I've done events like this, I end up being the, you know, the only prayer minister. And so lots more people got ministry and it was uh, it was a really good time. I, we've had we've had great favor in Costa Rica. It's I, I can't remember now, maybe my sixth, possibly seventh trip there. And we've just had. um we just had a lot of good breakthrough and success uh, and favor among the people. And so uh, this was a team, uh, I guess, like we were talking about last time, that people can join uh, people that have been a part of your school or uh, how does that work? Yeah, it, it used to be that I would take, you know, just about anybody who was eager to learn. Now we have the school. Um, I wouldn't say it's a formal prerequisite, but I prefer that people uh, be active in our school. And if they if they aren't doing that or haven't done that, then maybe the alternate scenario would be that they um, are at least listening to some of the recordings and things that I've made available that will give people a baseline of information. I'm finding that the people who go through the school are overall getting better training. Um, they can they grasp the information better, and I like their ministry style and format better. And and bottom line, they're more effective at seeing breakthroughs. So I prefer it for them to be in the school, but I'm, I'm aware that there's a cost there. And for some people that cost may not, uh, you know, may not work. And so in lieu of that, if people can't be in the school, then uh, they need to demonstrate at least some familiarity with, with, you know, what we're teaching, which is all in the Bible. There's nothing, there's no tricks here, but at the same time, there are many things in the Bible that often get overlooked. And so we try to bring them to light and highlight them as uh, the ways that we see healing or deliverance or inner healing or whatever um, occur in people's lives. Sure. Yeah. Well, cool. So tell me about some of the, uh, I want to hear some fun stories, some Ken stories from Costa Rica. Well, I, I think, I think the best story for me of the whole trip, there were, there were lots of them. But I, th this conference was on deliverance, which, you know, surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, so the church wanted to, you know, get its people trained in deliverance. And the church has a, has a legacy of being a center of renewal or outpouring or whatever we want to say uh, that goes back to the 19, I believe it's 1960s. Oh, wow. uh, maybe it's seventies. I don't want to, I don't want to misquote. So I'll, I'll leave that question mark there, but it's either the sixties or the seventies. And um, they exist in a, you know, an area of, 
uh, metropolitan San Jose, which is the national capital, where there's, um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that in any way we felt unsafe, but there's a history of maybe a little more activity with drug trafficking and and whatnot. And when you drive into that area, you can tell it's it's a less prosperous area. Um, there's a park about a block up the street. And a lot of people, as they do in many countries, including in most Latin American countries, they gather and they spend maybe much of their free time outdoors hanging out in the park. At least they do it in the dry season. Now, Costa Rica is a rainforest country. So in the wet season, that wouldn't be true. But, uh, but the, you know, the, the winter months, December in particular in January, these are months when rain is not common. So in those months, yeah, people will gather and, you know, just hang out. So this church has a fairly active outreach ministry to people in the park. And uh, they wanted to train their, their ministry teams and their outreach ministers, their evangelists, uh, their healing ministers. They wanted to get them breakthrough in, uh, in deliverance. It was also interesting because the pastor is very uh, fluent in English. He lived in the United States for a while. And although there's a, a bit of a trace of a Spanish accent that lingers, it's not very strong. And so he can move back and forth between the two. And when you walk into his library at the church, you know, he's got many books in Spanish, as you'd expect. And he's got many of the same books, Grant, that probably you and I have in our libraries um, of all of the things, right, that, right, that yeah. deal with, uh, with these matters. So uh, anyway, um, we went down and we did 15 sessions over a period of three and a half days. And I have to say at the end of that, I was completely wiped out. Um, just just the standing alone for three days. Yeah, right. Uh, roughly 14 hours a day. It, it, was, it was tough, it was really tough. But anyway, my favorite story was, uh, it happened, I think it was on the second, second full night of the conference. There was a, a young woman who came up for prayer, and there were a group of them that she was hanging around with, and all of them were teenagers between 15 and 18 years of age. This particular woman was 16, and uh, you know, I say woman because you know she was a young woman; she's an adolescent, but of course, in many ways, she was also uh, still a, a kid, as many teenagers are. They're in transition from childhood into adulthood. Um, her father and mother had uh, split up. And honestly, I don't even know uh, if her father and mother were ever married. Uh, there's an immense amount of immorality within Costa Rica. And I think many Americans are unaware of the degree to which this is true. But it is it is a society that is, um, well, I, I have said before, uh, it is one of the most immoral societies that I've ever been in in my life anywhere. All my countries travels around the world to many countries. Um, so anyway, the father and the mother had split up and now his father had a new squeeze to whom he was most definitely not married. Um, and the new squeeze was a witch. And so this young woman that I ended up praying with, with a couple of our team members, female team members, um, she had really never had anybody in her life who loved her or cared for her at all until this witch came into her life. Mm. And we started praying for her 
at, you know, we'd, I'd given an altar call and right now I don't remember what the altar call was about. It, it might've been for witchcraft because I'm aware that there's a lot of it uh, in Costa Rica, but I, I actually can't be sure that that was the altar call. Maybe if I had one of the teammates here, maybe they would tell me, but anyway, she came forward, we started to pray and there was a, a, a strong and growing manifestation, which uh, began to occur and it got stronger and stronger. And initially, we just couldn't get this evil spirit out. Um, we did we did drive out some, but it was like I knew we had not hit the point of breakthrough. We were definitely not at the bottom of the barrel. And at one point, um, I said to her, have you ever done anything with witchcraft that involves apples? I said, I keep seeing the evil stepmother out of uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and the, you know, the charmed apple. And she said, no, no, don't know anything about that. And I thought, okay, well, I missed it. And I, I just left it and we kept going. Uh, but anyway, we took a lunch break. And after lunch, she got some more prayer. And what do you know, after lunch, she said, you know, while I was eating, I was thinking about it. And actually, now keep in mind, the, the woman that's living in her home and filling the role of mother is not She's not her mother biologically, nor is she her stepmother, but because she is the bedmate, girlfriend, consigliere of the father, she fills the same uh, sociological role, niche role, as a stepmother would fill. And I had said, I keep seeing the stepmother. Mm. Well, um, she said, I was thinking about it during lunch, and actually my stepmother is what she called her, or my mom, actually. Uh, she has been teaching me all of the arts and crafts of witchcraft, and she has taught me how to cast spells using apples. Wow. So that was a really specific word of knowledge that, you know, I, I, to me it was exciting just because, you know, it's like, wow, I got one, you know. Right. <laughs> it's really specific. <laughs> So anyway, um, she ends up repenting of all this and gets delivered. And she had to renounce all of the witchcraft and the powers that it gave her. And again, let's just, just for the record, I really want to state this because people will miss it. Um, this was a young woman who felt very disempowered. She felt very vulnerable because her father really didn't care about her. Uh, her biological mother was no longer on the scene. Um, now she's, you know, dealing with all of the pressures and everything of adolescent life. And she had had, uh, let's just say, some liaison uh, with a boyfriend of hers uh, at her birthday, which, as it worked out, had fallen on October the 13th. You can't make this stuff up. Hmm. And so there was some uh, deliverance that had to happen from the immoral relationship with the boyfriend. And it wasn't a rape. It was a it was a willing uh, conjugal relationship that she'd entered into. But again, to restate what I already said, that there is an immense amount of immorality in Costa Rica. Now, even in America anymore, I'm not sure people would particularly raise their eyebrows at the idea of a 16 year old woman having a sexual relationship. But just just so we're all clear here, scripturally and biblically, this is not OK. I know it goes on. I'm not a, I'm not naive but it's not okay from a biblical standpoint. And so um, she had had this relationship, so we had to deal with that. But now having let go of the witchcraft, the question is, to whom is she going to relate? What is she going to 
how is she going to fill this void? Because of right. course her, her father's girlfriend who is filling the role of mom for her is of course going to want to continue the training and indoctrination into witchcraft. And she's just decided she's going to follow Jesus. So we said to the pastor, you know, she is a very, very vulnerable young woman because she's going right back into the lion's den and the pressure on her uh, to get back involved in witchcraft, the pressure on her from the boyfriend to get back involved in sexual behavior, all of this is going to be immense. Can she even stand against this? But anyway, one of the women who was helping pray for her uh, is a woman who lives there in San Jose. She's a Costa Rican, and um, she has never married, although she wanted to, uh, by her own admission, um, her early immoral uh, liaisons of her own uh, probably kept her from getting married. They, you know, they they tied her up long enough, not literally tied her up, just to be clear. But uh, but they, you know, they they delayed her. They kept her entangled relationally. That by the time all that was taken care of and she came to the Lord, many of the eligible marriageable men who might have become husbands um, had found other women and were no longer available. This, by the way, just this is a side note, but it is one of the risks of, uh, particularly for women, of engaging in immoral behavior in their teens and early 20s. They can become so physically and emotionally entangled that oftentimes the the, the optimum window for finding uh, a spouse closes. And I'm certainly aware, I'm not naive, and this isn't my first rodeo, uh, I'm certainly aware of the pressures that young women come under to be in, come involved sexually at the risk of losing said boyfriend. But there are there's a minority of young men who are not actually looking to conduct their life that way. Uh, they want to live in a noble and Christian manner. Um, but if the women are not available because they're involved in relationships like this, well, eventually they are likely to find somebody and they will no longer be available. So again, the counsel of scripture and the counsel of the Lord remains true that, you know, we should remain pure and chaste uh, until our wedding. And then even then we remain chaste. Uh, chaste is really a word that means uh, C-H-A-S-T-E, not, not the word as in pursued, C-H-A-S-E-D. Uh, so chaste means to conduct your sexual matters uh, in the manner that God has ordained them to be. So when we talk about what goes on within a marriage, um, even that is chaste behavior because no one is asking for married people to be celibate, um, rather just to keep their sexual uh, behavior within the marriage itself and not outside of it. Well, anyway, back to this young woman. So she gets freed and delivered, but we recognize she's a woman highly at risk. And then she says to this Costa Rican woman who had never married, but who'd always wanted a child, she says, you know, I'm, I, I'm really concerned about what my life is going to be like between my stepmother and my boyfriend. Now, we hadn't said anything to her. We were thinking it and talking about it privately, but, but she was not aware of it. Right. Uh, that we were saying that. And she said to the Costa Rican woman, the older one, um, would you be willing to be my mother? Wow. And this was like, I mean, the deliverance was amazing. Uh, the, the breakthrough for this young woman was amazing. 
But the fact that she now had a safe person in her life who was going to guide her and steer her toward the ways of the Lord, that she had enough wherewithal, enough presence of mind to request that this woman fill this role in her life, and that she now uh, would have somebody to stabilize her against the wiles of the devil, the temptations of the flesh, the things that might come against her. To me, it was amazing. And of course, the Costa Rican woman, the older woman, she now had a young, I don't know, mentee and could step into a mothering type of role, which she herself had never been able to have. And so for her as well, it was a it was an amazing a relational healing, not a physical one, maybe, but uh, but a relational healing. And so to me, it was just an incredibly heartwarming story. And it really showed the generosity and kindness of our father that he would that he would connect this older woman with this younger woman and that they would that they would have this chance meeting on the floor of the church in a deliverance session in right. San Jose, Costa Rica. Wow. That's amazing. Anyway, that that to me was probably uh, the high point of the trip. But but you know, here's another one that will stretch a lot of people. Um, the morning I left, the 19th of December, there were uh, I don't know maybe a third of the team was still uh, hanging out at the hotel because they had later plane later planes that same day. Um, I have I had left early to catch a morning flight to Los Angeles, and. Um, they decided to gather for prayer. And so there's this one room, uh, it's actually kind of an open air balcony, but it did have a roof on it to keep the rain off in the wet season uh, there at the hotel. And that was really where we gathered for team meetings. Now, anybody could overhear us and see what was going on. It was on the second story of one of the buildings where the rooms were. Um, but essentially it was a private room for us so i think a couple times people walked through the room going coming up a ramp and going around the corner to their own uh, bedrooms but but for the most part nobody bothered us and we we could do whatever we wanted and so we you know we just did what we did and i mean we kept our voices down so that they wouldn't carry but uh but what we were doing was observable uh, for anybody who might have been down below or, you know, the next building over or whatever. And it kind of reminds me of how the early church met in Solomon's portico. Portico is an older term for porch. Mm. And so this was the area, you know, in the temple that was open to all and, the, you know, open air. It would have had a covering over it. Uh, but, you know, all of those who were not yet believers uh, Jews or whoever might be within earshot, you wouldn't have had a Gentile within the temple grounds, but uh, maybe even outside the temple grounds, they might have been able to overhear some of what was going on. It's, it's kind of an effect like that. So anyway, um, this this remnant of the team gathered among themselves. And again, I was not present. I'd, I'd left and was on the plane flying home. Uh, they gathered for prayer. And as they gathered for prayer, um, somebody had the faith to start praying for those who wore glasses. And so a number of them got healed of nearsightedness and farsightedness uh, right there on this porch. Oh, wow. I've had meetings like this in the past, but I want to say it's probably been 10 years since I've had even a prayer call 
for people to come up and, you know, get their eyes prayed for to be freed of nearsightedness or farsightedness or astigmatism or any of these things that we commonly think of as correctable with glasses. And in fact, you know, I, <laughs> I still wear glasses, even though I've had meetings where people have been healed like that. And I'm always kind of like, Hey Lord, when do I get mine? You know? Right. And when I got the news about this, uh, you know, several people having been healed uh, in this porch thing where we had been holding our team meetings private team meetings, just among the ministry team. Um, I said, Lord, why is it that you did this the morning that I left? So I couldn't be present yeah. uh, for those healings that happened. So again, it's just kind of a heartwarming, got a humorous angle to it kind of a story. No, that's awesome. Wow. And so I guess on the, um, can you, can you touch on a little bit? I mean, I'm just thinking about 14 hours a day for three days at this conference on deliverance. I mean, I, I assume the church was hungry uh, for that kind of, for that kind of information. Are they experiencing uh, a need? I mean, are they, is there, is that becoming something of an issue for the church that they're, they're needing that kind of training? Well, definitely um, there again, there's a lot of witchcraft in Costa Rica. And I think many Americans are not sensitized to this. If you were to say there's witchcraft in say, oh, I don't know, Guatemala or Nicaragua or something, uh, Colombia or Peru, people would say, yeah, I get it. Um, but when they think of Costa Rica, I've, I've had many people say to me, oh, I love Costa Rica. It's the most American of the Central American countries. And what they mean by that is United States American, right? right. Um, and it is a wealthier country uh, by Central and South American standards. Although just to be clear, uh, Chile, Argentina, Argentina in Spanish, and Brazil are all, you know, at least in pockets, pretty wealthy nations also. And there are pockets of wealth in, say, Lima, Peru, and in Bogota, and in Caracas. So it's not uniformly true that South America or Central America are poverty-stricken. And I, I think a lot of people misunderstand that. But, but for sure, there's a higher level of poverty and there's a more uneven distribution of wealth than maybe what we think of uh, in the United States or perhaps even in Western Europe. So um, the, the nation of Costa Rica, by the way, the, 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 the words Costa Rica mean the rich coast. And the Spaniards named it this because they found a lot of wealth uh, within the borders of that country uh, when they came 400 years ago. So um, notwithstanding everything I've just said, within Costa Rican society, but probably just below the surface, there's a fair amount of witchcraft and nativist religion. Uh, you don't see it as much in the big cities because it's kept out of sight. But if you go out into the into the countryside, you go to the smaller towns and villages and things, uh, it's it's often right open on display. And again, it's not to say it's not going on in the cities. It's just not right there in your face. For, for example, and in contrast, if you were to go into, say, uh, Bolivia, um, you can walk down the street in Bogota. Sorry, that's the wrong country. In uh, Now I'm having mental lock. Anyway, the capital of Bolivia. If, if you walk down the street in Bolivia, you'll often see altars to other gods. They're, they're not big, but, but they're there. Uh, you'll see people burning sacrifices 
uh, all of these kinds of very nativist uh, behaviors, quite common in Bolivia. You won't see that very much in Costa Rica because of this westernizing influence. And so Costa Rica exists somewhere between a kind of an animist type society um, and a fully Christianized or post-Christian slash Western society. And that's why a lot of this is below the surface, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of witchcraft. That doesn't mean that the sexual immorality doesn't need to be addressed. And for people who have been involved in that, often they do need deliverance. And, you know, there were several other um, altar calls and things that we went through, but those were two of the big ones. Uh, other religions, uh, which, which might have been, say, that people who were involved at one time or another in Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or the Seventh-day Adventist, uh, SDA, uh, we had another call for people who had been involved in straight up witchcraft. We had another call for those who had been involved in the worship of the ancient gods, uh, whether Aztec or, uh, or Mayan, because where Costa Rica sits, it's kind of some of this and some of that. But anyway, um, so we had several rounds of deliverance that were going on. And the pastor was aware that these things are there. Um, he lives in a part of the city where that sort of thing would be more readily on exhibit. And then there's an overarching spirit that rules the country. Um, it's the ruling spirit of the nation. And its name is La Negrita, which means the little black one. By the way, that's not intended to be racist. It's just a literal translation of the Spanish uh, or the little dark one, if you prefer. But that doesn't really sound much better to our modern ears. And it's, a, it's an equivalent of what we call the Black Madonna in Europe. And um, that thing has immense power over people in that country. Um, it can shut down their spiritual uh, growth and development towards Jesus, even though it's a Catholic icon. Um, it often results in food allergies, skin allergies, and we had a lot of people get healed of those as we had a, a prayer call for people to get delivered from La Negrita. Um, so all of this was is there, and the pastor wanted his people equipped to understand what is this, how does it work, why do we need to address it, and I mean, it was a very busy uh, several days with that event. We had trash cans in the room, and I don't think there was a prayer session we had, except maybe the first one, and even then I think we used them. Uh, I don't think there was a single session we had where we didn't have heads in trash cans, people vomiting and chucking up uh, as they were getting delivered in a very profound, invisible way from the evil spirits that were in them. And again, this might've been from their various religious experimentations. It could have been from straight up witchcraft. It could have been sexual immorality, uh, could be ancestral stuff. It, I mean, it kind of ran the gamut, but we had 15 sessions. And uh, the very last session that we had on Sunday morning, uh, that was the morning of the World Cup final. So they started the church service late and they had a big gathering at the church for everybody to come down and watch the World Cup on the you know screens. And they were serving coffee and, and rolls. And, uh, and then we had church start late. But when I closed the service, I gave an altar call and it was actually meant to be a salvation call. And we had seven people come forward. And initially, I wasn't completely sure. Um, I, I, I've pretty well convinced myself after some further conversation that of the seven who came forward, uh, four were brand new converts who'd never been saved ever. Mm -hmm. 
and um, three were people who were rededicating their lives to the Lord. Um, so that was a that was you know that was a good turnout for that morning and that crowd because a lot of people, notwithstanding the World Cup party at the church, they didn't even come to church. They stayed home and watched the World Cup. Right. Uh, but then the ministry time started up, and I think when we left at three o'clock in the afternoon, we were pulling people, the team out of the church so we could depart, get back to the hotel, have a little bit of downtime before our farewell dinner that night. And then, you know, everybody was going to scatter and fly home. And so um, the pastor wants to incorporate deliverance as part of the normal process of salvation for just like these seven who came forward um, on that morning, we immediately want to start getting them free of whatever these evil spirits are, whatever these spiritual bondages are that are holding them back from advancing and developing as, uh, as believers. Because one of the things that will often stop the process of maturation in a new convert is if they are still carrying the evil spirits that they had before they were saved, um, it's often the case that they will either revert to those old behaviors or those evil spirits will effectively retard their growth and development. And I remember when I first became aware of this principle that I'm just describing here, you know, I, I, I knew friends and I'd, I'd led plenty of people to the Lord and it seemed as though they would pray the prayer. And sometimes within the hour, they would have reverted to the very behaviors they supposedly were repenting of. Other times it might take a few weeks or months, but, but they would kind of cycle back. And I remember one missionary in particular that I worked with, a um, long-term friend of mine, but I hadn't seen him in some years. Um, he was a missionary in Austria. And he used to go into the uh, the bars, the beer houses, and uh, the Brauhaus, and he would uh, he would evangelize people there because that's where people gather. And you know he might drink a beer, and I know for some that's a, a stumbling block, but but trust me, this guy's not a drunk, and he only did it to mix and mingle with them. It's a bit like Jesus uh, hanging out with drunkards himself. Um, not to say Jesus was a drunkard, just to be clear about what I am and I'm not saying, uh, but rather he, he would mingle with people who were drunks. Um, so this friend of mine that I hadn't been in touch with for a while, I started working with him. He was having, he, he had in the year before we started uh, traveling together, he had led about 500 people to the Lord, one-to-one -one, uh, hanging out in these beer halls. Um, but as far as he could tell, only two of them had stayed with it. The rest had reverted yeah. to their former way of life. And Austria is an almost completely secularized country. Every single thing that you can think of from drugs to, you know, immoral sexual relations to whatever, it's all there in spades. That's how people live. That's just, that's just normal life for them. And, um, Anyway, when he finally kind of figured out what was going on with the whole deliverance thing, he actually went back to some of those with whom he had prayed and had built relationships. So he had some relational equity. And he said, hey, can we do this again? I want to pray deliverance over you. And so he did that. And many of them, not 100%, but many of them were delivered and set free of evil spirits. And then he began incorporating deliverance as part of his standard protocol for new converts as he was leading them to Christ. Sometimes right there in the bar, he would pray deliverance over them in the bar, uh, 
as he was, as they were being born again. And what happened was that the church he was attached to in his town uh, over, over the next year or so, they added over 300 uh, new people to the church, wow. new converts. And the reason is because with the evil spirits gone, these new converts were now staying the course. Yeah. So throughout that story that you just told, there's probably, I don't know, 20 different podcast episodes that we could do uh, <laughs> that I'm sure people are sitting there going, now, wait a minute, what? Uh, and and so I'm taking notes, uh, everything from uh, Mormons need deliverance to uh, to how this works, uh, you know, as far as a salvation uh, technique. But I do know, I mean, the early church, you know, they would wait sometimes a year before they would baptize uh, That's correct. in order to disciple and to, and there was deliverance was a part of this, uh, this process. And so that's, it's not atypical. It's pretty, it's pretty much how it was done. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, all of the things that we're carrying uh, as we're in the world, you know, we need to get, need to get dealt with uh, just, just like habits. I mean, to me, it's, it's so much, it's, it's a part of the discipleship uh, process. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, we're, we're, we're running out of time here. Uh, I do think that there's, I mean, I'm, I'm literally making notes. There's some things that I think we could get into that we don't have time to get into uh, right now, but I'm sure people are going to be, uh, are going to be wondering about some things, but all that to be said, Ken, uh, how can people go with you on these trips? Like, do you advertise it? Where, where can they find information about these sort of things? I'm sure people would love to, to jump in, especially Costa Rica in the winter. Like I'll, I'll, I'll go to that one. It's it's actually amazing, right? It's it's warm but not hot. Uh, it's not particularly humid, which of course it often it would be at other seasons because of the rainforest effect, and uh, and it's dry, so you're not you know soaking wet all the time. Uh, you know, we we talk about these trips and publicize them through three primary vehicles. Uh, the first one is through our app which is the Orbis Ministries app. It's findable and downloadable uh, through the Apple Store, the Google Play Store, through Spotify. And we've been on Charisma, but I think I think actually we need to renew that one. So it may not be active at this time, but for sure, Apple and Google and Spotify. Uh, the second place that they can find it is through our website, which is orbisministries.org. Uh, we publicize it there, uh, not just one trip, all of them for the year. And then uh, the next uh, the next place is we have a private Facebook group, which I'd, I'd like to encourage our listeners, if they're not in it, um, to write to info at orbisministries.org, info at orbisministries.org, so we can add you to that group. You can't search for it. It's called God is Not a Theory, just like this podcast. Uh, but you can't search for it because it's what Facebook terms a secret group. And uh, that's I did that on purpose when I started it because I wanted to be able to have conversations that would be less aggressively monitored by Facebook. And, uh, and we do that and it's worked pretty well. We've had a couple of big purges by Facebook over the years. And so that group ought to be um, about 30,000 people right now. And it's more like 84, 8,500. But, um, but anyway, you, you can't just go search for it, but if you email info at orbisministries.org, we can add you to the group. And I haven't really done a lot of writing for that group of late 
but it used to be where I did most of my blogging. And one of my intentions for 2023 is to start posting some new blog type material there. And then we have, you know, live discussions and so forth that go on there. And so that's a third way within that group, we publicize all of the ministry trips that are coming up and people can sign up and they'll hear from Mark, who's my international trip coordinator. Um, somebody else handles, handles the domestic trips. That's also an option to travel with me domestically. It's cheaper, tends to be a few less days away. And so for some people, that's a better place to stick their toe in the water and get started. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Ken, thanks so much. And uh, I know right now you're on a, uh, on a retreat. So thanks for taking time and, and, and joining us uh, for this, uh, for this episode. So thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you right back here uh, this time next week for another episode of God is not a theory with Ken Fesh. recently updated the Orbis Ministries app with Ken's free teaching archive. You can click on the link in the description of this podcast to download today.